John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 330.jb1810, certificate number 36728. The DeLorean Cocaine Bust. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? So for people of our generation, the DeLorean needs no introduction. Uh, but for futurelings... Maybe maybe they only know the DeLorean one way. But are you going to say Back to the Future? Yeah. Are you going to say a DeLorean has visited them from 1985? It's entirely possible that they've seen the DeLorean the flying only through car, the sky. It's the only car they've ever seen actually <laughs> running instead of just the hulks out on the wasteland. They're flying all around. They're probably uh, – DeLoreans have, have been like taken apart, reverse engineered, and are being manufactured in 2240 or whatever. Well, the funny thing is, even as I never saw those later movies. <laughs> Wait, you didn't? <laughs> the cowboy one or whatever. It's got the th- it's got the three um, the three great kinds of of uh, of time space adventure. It's right. got the you, past. You go have sex with your own mom. Man's past, man's future, right? And cowboy hijinks. Yeah, <laughs> the three. I, I it's ne- like they realized there were only two directions in time, and we've already done past and future. Uh, Okay, cowboys, I guess. Somehow, um, when Back to the Future came out, it was, I was the target audience for it, right? I mean, I was almost exactly the age that Marty McFly was pretending to be when the movie came out, and it was a fun romp. You also wondered how attractive your mom was in her youth. And I was like, did Peggy Sue get married? I mean, all those all those mid-80s boomer fantasies about their own childhoods uh, that were they're pretend they're supposedly about young people, but right. really they're about growing up in the fifties. Yeah, they were they were dressed up to appeal to us eighties kids, but it was really like sock hops. We get to go back. We we movie directors get to go back home. Uh, but by the time Back to the Future Two came out, I had aged out of the franchise. I was just the wrong age for it to feel like ugh, Back to the Future, and it was only. It wasn't that many years that separated them. No, it's just a couple years later, right? But by then, I think I was probably 17 and couldn't be bothered with these dumb kid movies. And I only watched it for the first time three weeks ago. My daughter insisted 
on seeing Back to the Future 2 because she'd enjoyed Back to the Future 1. Kids love those movies. My kids have seen those movies more times than any movie of their generation, I think. But I couldn't believe how bad Back to the Future 2 was. Oh, just, I disagree. Oh, it was just excruciating. No. You think it's great? Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's not a well-constructed confection like the first one is, right. but I enjoyed it very much. But there, it's just all like nut-punching and stuff. I just felt like the jokes, the jokes were no good. Am I wrong? Do I need to go watch it? Do I need to watch this terrible movie again just to figure out where you're coming from? Uh, I like the complicated, like, I don't know if I'm, uh, I don't know what the jokes are that cracked me up. It's true. It does. Yeah. It must be less quotable yeah. than the first one since I can't really think of any uh, of the great lines, but I think it's just a very serious uh, convoluted time travel comedy. Like in a way, the first one isn't, you know, it actually pushes the premise of the first one further, which is what I want to see in a sequel. Right. I, I, I've i never seen the cowboy one, so I have to guess that it's what? The best of the three or <laughs> the worst of the three? No. I think it's I think it's generally held to be... There's some revisionism now that's coming out in favor of Back to the Future 2, which everyone hated for decades. But oh, Back I, to the Future 2 was not, was not liked? No, I don't think so. Oh, oh, interesting. But the third one is kind of just the, a genial, uh, it's just fine, but inessential kind of a thing. Right. Like, like uh, Will Smith's Wild Wild West, a thing that you don't need to see. Exactly. But that was fun at the time. It has ZZ Top in it. Oh, I like ZZ Top. But not Crispin Glover. That's oh. the, the problem with the sequels is no Crispin Glover. Oh, right. Because he was he so was, nuts. He was, uh, he was like edited in and there was a lawsuit about there it, There right? was, yeah. yeah. They, they kind of, um, they, dis- they have to dis- dispose of his character and have Michael J. Fox play all of his male ancestors instead of <laughs> where it should be Crispin Glover. Well, the funny thing about the use of the DeLorean in, um, in Back to the Future is that it absolutely enshrined the car as the kind of, uh, the ne plus ultra of eighties autos. Well, by the way, I think even in 2020, the DeLorean would be largely forgotten. It would be kind of a Carson punchline, uh, among non-car people, among the general populace, if not for Back to the Future. Like, now they know, ah, this was kind of the cool uh, Corvette of that of that year or whatever, you know, which you would not have if not for Back to the Future. But even in its moment, even in, the, uh, in its time, by the time Back to the Future came out, the DeLorean was already, the DeLorean company was already insolvent, the DeLorean itself was already a cultural punchline. That's funny because it had been chosen for its futuristic qualities. Right. And by the time the movie comes out, it's the opposite of that. It's a relic. When they were, when they were first writing Back to the Future, the, uh, the initial time machine was supposed to just be a laser beam on a, on a tube, on a, like a sawhorse. It was a mad scientist's yeah. gimmick. And it wasn't, uh, there wasn't enough to it. And so they built that to, to sustain, you know, the, the plot or to make, to make interesting vignettes. And so their second iteration was they made a time machine in a refrigerator. Now that's interesting. And they climbed into the refrigerator and then someone pointed out that, that hundreds of kids would die of suffocation playing back to the future. Well, that is a way to travel to the future. Interesting. You get into a refrigerator <laughs> you and, die, and die, and you're found weeks later. It's fun. Kids do not. Tra- kids of the future. There's probably refrigerators littering the wasteland as well. Nowadays, it's not a problem. Did you know that 
They they fixed it somehow that you yeah. can't get locked inside. Yeah, you of can't get locked inside a fridge. Uh, why? How did how did they fix it? Oh, I think it was just a, a matter of uh, they used to what they didn't used to they used to oh, latch they on the outside. From the outside. I think that's right. And now yeah, right. I always so this, wondered, hasn't a, this hasn't been a problem for decades. How kids, hard would it be to get out of a refrigerator? Kids climb in all the refrigerators you want. It's easy. It's fun. A, a, a mere push right. on the door part of the fridge will get you back out into the non suffocating world. It's true. Those old ones do have like that latch that clicks. Why would you need to seal it? They haven't invented. Whatever the spongy stuff now that makes a fridge go thunk satisfyingly. Yeah, they didn't when have it's closed. The, the satisfying thunk. By the way, we have a fridge freezer where we just put stuff and forget about it. So yeah. I'm sure it's got Costco <laughs> bacon from 2009. Yeah, <laughs> or whatever. Right. Side of beef. Uh, some lasagna my, uh, we got when uh, my daughter was born. <laughs> uh, and the other day I walked into the garage and. Um, just walked over to a shelf and realized I had just stepped through a puddle of something. Uh-oh. And we found out that, you know, during a very hot week, the refrigerator had been, the freezer had been left open. Like a, a tarp had gotten stuck in the oh, squishy part of the door. And it thawed everything? It thawed? had thawed everything in the fridge. So we were, um, so, you know, the first thing you do is you check your X-Men comics. And it turned out that m- none of my X-Men comics were wet. Okay. You know, you know what you do. <sighs> I know. You can breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah. Second thing we did is make sure, like, see how much of the food we had to throw away. And it was like all the blackberries I picked last year. Oh, Boo. Those the blackberries will, they'll don't never go be a bad. Combo. Yeah, but they were like dripping black goo all yeah. over the rest of the stuff. You're right. Uh, you know, we kept all the stuff that seemed like, you know what? This this sm- pork didn't go all the way fro- unfrozen. It was more like this smoked salmon has, st- you know, is still vacuum sealed and what could happen to smoked salmon. But right, right. we threw away a lot of goopy food and I had to squeegee a lot of blackberry gunk off the floor of the garage so that squishy shunk stuff maybe you do need a latch i mean for for your in garage freezer yeah maybe what you should do and this is why kids don't get into refrigerators because your friends might put a cinder block on top of it as a joke and And then in that case you and if you're the kind of weak kid who's going to be victimized by this kind of prank, you can't push over a cinder block. That's right. That's right. It's a perfect storm. When you were growing up, did you have a, this is very off topic, sorry. Did you have a fridge in the garage just for soda? Uh, no, but there was a time. So when I was in high school there, we did have a, a chest freezer because at some point. For the, your dad started murdering drifters. In, 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 no, this was my mom's house. In sixth grade, I won a side of beef in a raffle. <laughs> oh, right. I've heard this. Yeah. And so we, we ended up. So you had to buy a freezer? Well, this, this prize cost you hundreds of dollars. And then my mom's boyfriend at the time was an avid fisherman. Mm. And so we always had these giant Alaskan salmon that now, if you, if you ordered one in a Seattle restaurant, the salmon would be worth $900. But at the time, you, the they you, could would just, just, you could just walk out on the beach and grab a 35-pound salmon with yeah, your hands. You were just stacking them outside trying to find a place to put them. So our freezer was always full of salmon. I guess there's a Midwestern thing of having a soda fridge. Soda fridge. And, I've, and I'm thinking in, in my new house that I, will have a, that I will have both a freezer in the garage and a soda fridge in the basement because why not? Money is free. When we bought our house, I had a wine fridge and we don't drink, but we almost repurposed it as a kimchi fridge. Because oh, make your own. Leave it in there cooking. I, I think I don't know if you actually want a slightly war, a higher temperature for kimchi the way you do for wine. But I know one thing you do is you want to keep it away from anything else because anything else you put in, with your kimchi in your fridge will, will taste like kimchi like one millisecond later. I can imagine you selling the house and uh, there's a sign on it that's like, "Don't open the wine fridge. It's a kimchi fridge now. Cursed. And it will be. It will make your wine taste like kimchi." The, uh, so it's not a refrigerator in the movie anymore. No, then they they then they they thought and what's what's crazy is to think that they made 
Back to the Future and that the original scripts would not have had all of those gags about cars. Well, yeah, I mean, think the, about how the whole the whole third act is about you, you can't propel a, a refrigerator into a lightning blast, can you? I mean, the car is the whole movie in yeah. a, in a way, and um, and so it must have it must have inspired a real script revision when they settled on a car. But think and, how happy they were not to just have a static refrigerator yeah. sitting connected by a cable to the to the <laughs> clock tower in the middle of Hill Valley Main Street. And, and it would have been an old style refrigerator with a locking That's door. That's right. I think Mustang offered them uh, offered uh, Zemeikis uh, like a ton of money to use a Mustang, and he was like, "No, not on your life." Why not? Well, I don't know because he took every other like dollar sure. offered to him like, by Coke Pe- and Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> All of Pepsi's revenue in 1985 <laughs> went to product placement in Back to the Future. Uh, but somehow he felt like a Mustang was not, and it might have been because the mid 80s Mustangs were so cheap looking. But no, he wanted a DeLorean, and um, because and because of the look of the DeLorean, because it was yeah, it was just so it was so futuristic. But also, I think a, a, if you look at RoboCop now, when RoboCop came out, they had access to all of those what what at the time would have been not yet released Ford Tauruses and Chevy Caprices that that were part of that school of auto design where they, the, the car just looked like a lozenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and so those cars, their, their, their cinematic debut was in RoboCop, which was set in the very near future. And at the time people would have thought, look at these, look at these cars of tomorrow. Right. And they really, it really was effective, uh, especially when those cars started very shortly thereafter showing up on the streets. I like when you see a prototype car in a movie pretending to be an electric car of of the next 10 years. I do too. And the, you know, the, the, the challenge is like the, in the Woody Allen movie sleeper, there are a bunch of cars from the future, but they're clearly golf carts that have tinfoil on them. (laughs) And, and the illusion is kind of ruined when you can't, because a car wants to look like a, like a solid mass produced thing. Nobody's hand making cars in the future. Uh, and yeah, you can tell they never have enough of them, right? Right. You'll often see, you know, the hero driving one, but you know, the cars he's driving past in the background will be kind of blurry, just uh, Honda Accords. Yeah, and, and golf carts covered with refrigerator boxes. But so the so the DeLorean had, you know, it had a lot of solidity, and it felt like a future car, even in the mid '80s when we already learned that the DeLorean was a was a bad car, or if not a bad car, at least a curio. Uh, a, a curio, and in a way, part of the failure of DeLorean was, or the failure of the car was that although it looked very fast and looked very luxurious and sporty, um, John DeLorean himself had tried to make it um, a car for, uh, he tr- in one way, tried to make it a people's car. His initial idea was that they would be not affordable, but, but priced like a Corvette, Just priced like-, like an American car. So you can put your family in it? Well, no, but so that you could, so that everybody could have access to a supercar. But in order to accomplish that, um, in the manufacturing of it, they ended up going with a, with an engine made by Renault, um, who have made some fast cars in their day. You know, Renault is pretty famous for, um, for some of their, uh, rally cars, but this wasn't the fast motor. And so the car had no real it was not well made and it was have you ever driven one 
there was a time on the American market where you could find a used DeLorean for about $12,000. And I remember at I did it's it's not like I ever had $12,000 to buy to spend on a car including now, but there was a time when I thought I should buy a DeLorean now you because could, you thought it was going to go up. Just one day there's I mean they only made they only made a handful of these. It can't possibly not be worth money now. Or not be worth money one day. What I've discovered is that they're only worth money to Back to the Future reenactors. Oh, interesting. Um, you see, you see them in the world, but they're almost always dressed up. They're all, almost always cosplaying now. We saw, you know, I've walked down. Uh, I was near Times Square, so it must have been like Forty Sixth Street or something, uh, just to see a yeah a, a DeLorean parked by the side of the street with a bunch of eager Chinese tourists taking pictures with it. And it was clearly their cosplaying. But I've also just seen here by the Seattle Center in town, like we were, I don't know where we were going, but we passed five or six DeLoreans all headed the same direction. And we realized- It's a car club. That some, there's some kind of, yeah, back to the future parade going yeah. on. Um, I think if you see an Avanti on the street, it's still rarer than a DeLorean, but- How many were made? Uh, Avantis or DeLoreans? Well, DeLoreans, I don't know. The the uh, I think the final run of DeLoreans was nine thousand cars, but uh, but not all of them sold at at the time. In fact, I think at, at the bankruptcy of the DeLorean company, only half had sold. So were some just junked? There's a famous picture of a of a loading dock in Ireland that's just a sea of unsold DeLoreans. Oh yeah, they were made in Ireland. That's yeah, that's part of the for tax the, reasons, I guess. Well. Part of the trick of the DeLorean company was that the British government gave a hundred million pounds to the building and uh, the, the the whole setup of the DeLorean auto. That is a pretty good trick. It's a pretty good. Anybody trick. who could, anyone who can do that trick, has solved. <laughs> Every problem in their life, right? If you can solve the get 300 million pounds from the government trick? Um, you would think uh, that that would be enough. It wasn't enough for the DeLorean Appar- company. Apparently that only gives you two years of running a vanity car company. Yeah, getting the $100 million incentive was a real coup for DeLorean. And it seemed like a coup for the UK government at the time. This was... this was To bring in jobs? or Yeah, this was a th- sort of Thatcher-era... A jobs incentive build the build the auto plant in Northern Ireland, and this is hot in the middle of the troubles, right? So this was a um, this was a time when Northern Ireland was really impoverished, and when the when the, the the UK claim to Northern Ireland was under its sort of greatest scrutiny, mm-hmm. and to build this factory and provide what would have been thousands and what were thousands of jobs to. Um, the the Irish there, it seemed like a win win situation for Thatcher, uh, what or for the you know for the conservative government at the time. And what happened was, um, in in fact, the um, the troubles kind of made their way even into the Delorean plant. There were work slowdowns. A bomb went off. Um, there was a lot a lot of the quality control that ended up being a problem for the company was not not connected to the difficulty there, um, you know, the the violence and the kind of the fact that the DeLorean company was seen as a government 
uh, intrusion. Right. Like what an obvious target if you want to, um, you know, target the, uh, the loyalist government of Britain, right. you know, you've got a brand new factory right there. But, but the hundred million dollars was not enough to prop up the company largely because John DeLorean was not a good, uh, car company owner operator. And it's funny because John DeLorean was an incredibly good car designer and car, um, car company executive. And so it, where'd he come from? He was a Pontiac or something. So DeLorean, uh, was a kid kind of born in poverty to immigrant parents. His parents had come from what was then the Austro-Hungarian empire. Uh, specifically his father was from a place in Romania, kind of right in the, a very little and impoverished town in the central Carpathians. His mom was also sort of this Austro-Hungarian empire generation. But he has this amazing name, DeLorean. Which is, I think a, um, you know, when, uh, when you think of, when you think of, Austro-Hungary, you think of it as being German-Hungarian, but of course, Romania is a Latin country, and the Romanian language is a Latin language, not a not a Germanic or Slavic language. So there. So are, DeLorean's a legit Romanian name, huh? It would have been probably Delorenescu, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but but it but it it would not be. Um, it's not pretension to have to have it sound like a very Mediterranean. I've never had a cool sounding name, but it must just be, it must just haunt your dreams that, I mean, it must do so much for you if your name is DeLorean. And if you're, if you're working for General Motors, you're thinking, you know, what would be a better name for a car company than General Motors? DeLorean. DeLorean. Like there is no reason I should be laboring under somebody else's worse brand. Well, and it's such a great seventies name because (laughs) the seventies were full of names like DeLorean. Um, like Ralph Lauren is is almost a homonym, uh, but also DeLorean was tailor made for the seventies. He had he had the all the qualities of a Bond villain early in the movie before you realize he's the villain. When it's when there's some rakish character, he's just in a playing film, polo like, or uh, oh hello, Mister Bond or Baccarat or something. Welcome to the welcome to my car company, and then you then the the. Bombay sure. doors open there's and a, you realize there's a like, missile under oh, the no, assembly it's, line. It's a submarine. Uh, but John DeLorean was the the kind of classic American story of a gifted kid that came from an impoverished background that sort of excelled in his local schools and got a scholarship and went, you know, didn't get a scholarship to MIT, got a scholarship to uh, the you know the local technical college. But it turned out that during that period, the the his father got a job as a as a, working for Ford at a time when his his dad was uneducated and alcoholic and got a pretty menial job working for Ford. But the local schools were all pipelines to the Ford Motor Company or p- pipelines to Detroit, and so the local technical college turned out to be a technical college that was producing all the oh, great, that's interesting. all the great car designers. All those kids got really great at uh, education. Yeah. Because all the courses were like car centric. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, you could get degrees in like automotive design, automotive, uh, like transmission design. 
and DeLorean was, uh, was gifted and excelled in those programs and sort of entered the auto, the auto world as a sort of local boy. Right. Uh, but because he was really good and had, and uh, worked hard and was good at engineering, he very quickly kind of rose up the, uh, rose up the internal ladder first at Chrysler. Then, um, he went to Packard and then was kind of cherry picked away, uh, to GM. And he was a classic engineer, somebody that worked, that developed a new innovation on a transmission that, um, nobody at Packard had, had conceived of that all of a sudden his, his new transmission was kind of like Packard's and he's in his twenties wow. and it's like this selling point for the new Packard. Uh, and so when, when he was brought to GM, he was already kind of a golden boy, young guy. And, uh, and this was at a time when the corporate culture in America, but also uh, in Detroit was pretty buttoned down, pretty square, crew cut. And was he, uh, well, he was pretty square and crew cut, but, oh. but was, but his name was DeLorean and he, he was, um, he was a hot dog and then he really made his name not just at GM, but in America by effectively building the first muscle car. He's the guy who said, why don't we take this, this mid-level kind of entry-level trim Pontiac Tempest that's, you know, a light light-bodied mid-sized sedan that that like a salesman might drive and we're just going to shoehorn a big V8 in it and basically do nothing else we're just going to drop a giant it's like we're going to drop a giant engine into this is that right is the economy car the, so the GTO is just it's it's got all the it's a lightweight economy car with with a giant motor and that's and One it's not, and, for... and the thing is, it wasn't even the giantest motor at the time. He just put in a V8. He put in a big motor. Uh, the muscle car wars that that he ignited with that in the early '60s uh, ended up with l- lightweight, mid-sized economy cars that had uh, obscenely big motors, and um, and and that and that basically invented the genre of the the uh, 1960s murder ballad. <laughs> or the 1960s car crash ballad, because uh, because these cars just were because he murdered so many because now teens were thought it was more fun to drive. Well, it was the it was the um, it was the the difference between a, the American conception of a sports car and the European conception of a sports car. European sports cars all through the 50s and 60s. The premise was sure have a have a a, a hot tuned motor. But the car needs to be fast through the corners. And so the cars were small and light and the motors were small displacement um, because Europeans, well, European roads have turns in them. American roads, especially in the 50s and 60s, were built. There's nothing in the way. Yeah, like let's make this six lanes wide and straight as an arrow. And so American muscle cars were, um, let's put the biggest motor in it as you can and then don't worry about turns. Um well, so this, is, this is going to be a dumb question, I've, and I've wondered this since I was a kid. But what is the thing sticking up on the hood of a of a GTO? I've always wondered that. Well, so in order to is it intake, uh, yeah, a lot of the a lot of the performance that you would get out of those motors was, um, and this and this became an issue later when GM kind of banned the practice. But initially, uh, what they did was put more than one carburetor on top of the motor. Like what we need to do is get gas and air into this motor 
faster and in larger quantities. So let's just put a second carburetor. Let's put a third carburetor up there. And those carburetors st- sticking up out of the top of the motor, um, if you've got a bunch of carburation, and especially if you've got a blower, which is a, a device that then spins up that air and pushes it down, you know, kind of like a like a turbo, um, that's going to sit up on top of the engine block, and you're going to need to cut a little space out for um, for the air to get uh, in. On those early GTOs, it's so high, it must be in driver's sight line, I think. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, the I mean, the, the you're looking at you're looking at an early GTO. Show me the picture that you're looking at. Is this modified? I know they're not all this big, but yeah. So that's um, so that's a uh, like a yeah a modification. And I and what you had, what you had, what they discovered in those early cars was that if your carburetor was sucking so much air into these big motors that you would actually it could actually create a thing called vapor lock, which was that it had created a vacuum under the hood of the car and it couldn't get enough air, couldn't get air in enough, uh, fast enough. And the motors would bog down cause they weren't, um, cause they didn't have the, they didn't have intakes and that, that area under the hood could create, they could suck air so fast that it's not like those are closed systems, right? Air can come in un- sure. under the wheels or whatever, but it just not enough that that little space between the top of the air uh, air cleaner and the and the hood, the inside of the hood, wasn't enough. Um, but the GTO was a huge hit, and it it um, it inspired all the automakers to get into this game of putting big big motors in small cars, uh, and made DeLorean kind of a star. And this was uh, an era that we talk about a lot. In our culture now, the the mid '60s car culture, um, like car manufacturing, car customizing, car racing, uh, it was a it was a big subculture in the United States, and and one that that kind of pervaded. Americans had always had an uh, an interest and fascination in cars, and in the '50s, but but not as a powerful performance thing. You know, they started out as kind of a a mechanics tinkering hobby. And a, and a and a, uh, a a place of luxury. All the different yeah. brands were established as like this is more luxurious than that. And if you want this, you get that. But but the idea of a car being um a macho hot rod symbol of speed and power, thrill ride. And so Delorean was in charge of Pontiac, and he was the one that 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 turned Pontiac into GM's kind of performance division, and. He then was behind the uh, the production of the Firebird, which became you know kind of legendary nineteen seventies, late sixties and nineteen seventies uh, performance car, culminating in first the Bandit, his uh, his Trans Am in Smokey and the Bandit Smokey and the- was a Firebird, and then. Uh, maybe for your generation, Ken. Are you going to say the General Lee? No, no, no. That was not <laughs> Firebird or a Pontiac. No, uh, I was going to say Knight Rider. Kit, Kit from Knight Rider. Kit is also a Trans Am. Yeah. But so DeLorean by the late 60s had kind of turned everything that had ever been handed to him to gold. Whenever he was promoted into a new job, he he succeeded in in turning that part of the car company around, not only turning it around, but creating a, uh, a new car, a new idea that made him a star. And he was the toast of Detroit at a, at a 
time when Detroit was on top of the world. And uh, yeah, you, you remember that time in the seventies and eighties when car executives were on the covers of time and newsweek all the time. And Iacocca could sell like 30 million copies of an autobiography. Right. Like you knew the names of car executives, which is hard to imagine. You now. did. And, and uh, in the, in the swing in sixties, in the late sixties, when, um, when that button down corporate culture was under assault, from three or four different directions. DeLorean became one of the first major executives that you would see walking around in a, uh, in an open collared suit, um, hobnobbing with celebrities. He was friends with Sammy Davis. He was, he would go on the Carson show. He was, uh, before then it was, it was, it would be more like, um, an aircraft company vibe, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Quasi-military slide rule kind of a thing. And pocket protectors and whatnot. And he was, he had the engineering chops, but he was part of the playboy culture at the time. And um, John DeLorean was married four times, and I think three of those times to women in their early 20s, even though he continued to get older. (laughs) They stayed the same age. (laughs) Um, And he... You know, he was an uh, one of the first kind of documented uh, celebrity men to have plastic surgery. Oh, interesting. Um, and his plastic surgery was to augment the squareness of his jaw. And this was something he was he was happy to tell people. No, about. I don't think so. But no. it was, but it was, uh, you know, it was somewhat widely known, or at least, yeah. yeah. Um, he was. Handsome, rakish. He and as especially as he got into his forties and fifties, he had the that that wonderful white hair, dark eyebrows. With dark look. eyebrows, like I don't, they don't make those anymore. It's such a Bond villain vibe. Um, I assume a lot of these people are coloring their eyebrows. Who do that? I don't know. I mean, not ever having had eyebrows and sitting across from you here in eyebrowless. That's the rule. The you, you can't bunker. have eyebrows that come in here. <laughs> Can't be on the omnibus program if there's you a little, walk in here with there's eyebrows. There's a little retina scanner by the door that goes, boop, 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 but it just looks at your eyebrows. <laughs> He's got eyebrows. You know, we could we could each take one of his eyebrows and split them up and have. He's got eyebrows all twice day. Twice the eyebrows we each have, and he now. knows how to use them. But I I just feel like you know facial hair often comes in grayer or lighter than the hair on your head. Um, but, so I, I'm skeptical of these dark eyebrowed men. Maybe that's just my jealousy talking. It's a thing. I think if you, you know, if you go back to the old country, it's, um, Oh yeah. He's from the Carpathian mountains. Yeah. He's uh, he can turn into a bat. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. It's a, it's a kind of vampirism that that's rampant in Transylvania. That's why all the young women too. He's, but he, that's right. He's feeding on their blood. You know, I have a hard time managing stress sometimes and I've always wanted to learn how to meditate, but who has the time? Am I right? That's why I'm so excited about Headspace. It's one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. These are all things I desperately crave, but I always feel like I'm learning to do meditation wrong. Headspace makes it easy to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that would work for you or me on our schedule, anytime, anywhere. We deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash omnibus for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. 
This is the best deal offered right now. Head to Headspace. That's head to headspace.com slash omnibus today. By the late 60s, the, the, the problems that were piling up against the auto industry started to come to a head. And, and uh, we're talking about after the um, after the, the the famous kind of Ralph Nader assault on the Corvair, which which really um, whether or not the Corvair actually was unsafe at any speed, it was the first it was the first kind of public doubt cast upon the I'm automakers sure. that not only were the car's not as well made as they said, but they but Detroit itself was in a conspiracy against the American people, covering it up. Um, and then we entered into an era of corporate cost cutting, and then the energy crisis, and then the congressional sort of mandate about pollution and a switch to unleaded gas, and all of this stacked up to land on the American automakers in the early seventies, seventy two or or thereabouts. And prior to that, it was the Wild West. You could put as much gas in these cars as you wanted. You could drive them however you wanted. It's the American way. And starting in about uh, – starting in uh, – the, the writing was on the wall in 70, 71. It didn't all maybe come crashing down until later or until 72. But DeLorean's last he, – he, he had risen to the top of um, – he was in the loftiest heights of General Motors at this point. He'd been given control of Chevrolet, uh, their major, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the major big brand component of GM. And he was the one that, that invented the Vega, which became in the, in, in my lifetime, at least for many years, the Vega was one of those ultimate auto punchlines, a cheaply made flimsy rust bucket of a economy car. General Motors attempt to compete with the Japanese with some little flaky uh, piece of garbage. But in fact, the Vega, if you look at the Vega in 1970, 71, when they were developing the Vega, it was going to be a absolutely super cool little car. Um, I guess it was the Motor Trend car of the year, the year it came out before it was, all the, before all the problems were known. It looks like a, a, a small little Camaro um, it, it was going to be a performance car. It was going to be, um, a people's car and DeLorean was behind it. And then GM, and you know, this is the, it's not only the classic American story, but it's also the classic American corporate apologia. Um, it's sort of like we didn't lose the Vietnam war. It was those hippies in Congress. Um, but what happened at general motors was the cost cutters came in and gutted the gutted the quality control and gutted the Just killed by committee. That's right. Gutted the the power of the unions and this this was the dawn of the death of Detroit. Uh, and the Vega became a punchline. And DeLorean realized that he his a combination of his his actual success, his celebrity, and his perceived business acumen. Um caused him to believe that he could, that he had a better way. I'm a cool guy in a turtleneck and I can get investors. It's the, it's the, the confidence of the tall, handsome man. That's right. The tall, handsome man who knows Johnny Carson and who 
is already a millionaire himself. He's got a, a closet full of identical mustard turtlenecks, and he's good to go. DeLorean during this period was being paid an astronomical amount of money, which is to say two hundred thousand dollars. Oh my goodness! Big money. Think of all the waterbeds you could buy. I mean, a top man. <laughs> Only the top men got two hundred, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Can you imagine a time when executives would get that kind of exorbitant payment? I mean, crazy to think about. I mean, today they're working a thousand times harder. Sure. So, the, of course, they're worth twenty million dollars a year. Yeah. But at the time, yeah. uh, the guy that developed the GTO, the Camaro, <laughs> uh, he was you know two hundred thousand dollars, and that was a lot of money at the time for sure. It was uh, the equivalent of. A couple of million dollars a year, but certainly nothing. In nineteen seventy, no, it, no, it won't be that much. To a million and a half. A year. No, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. It's going to be six digits. He's making like half a million in modern day. Let's movies. see. You put it into your function machine. What year? What year are we saying? Uh, let's say. Let me get. Let me. Let me. Let me get this actual figure for you. Uh, DeLorean salary, nineteen seventy. Do, 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 do. Oh, 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 oh. I'm a, sorry. Did he get a raise? He was, oh no, he was making $200,000. Around 1970? Around 1970. Uh, oh no, you're right. It's, that's up, uh, it's upwards of a million. Upwards of a million. A million dollars and more. That's kind of eye-opening. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it is. Because we often talk about how corporate salaries have gone... Uh, crazy and point to a figure like that $200,000. But even so, John DeLorean, as head of Chevrolet, getting paid a million two. I guess it's just ahead of the 70s era inflation. Like if you're making 200000 in in 1980, that's what I'm picturing. And oh, that's only 400000 you know, Yeah, that's like $600,000. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. That would have been a ton of money. I mean, this is at a time when I think when my mom divorced my dad, she was making what? $8,000 a year? I remember when she was making, I can remember her making $14,000 a year and feeling like, wow, my mom's getting, making fourteen. Getting to five, do, five figures was, yeah. was bank. Uh, so DeLorean leaves General Motors and pretty on pretty good terms, um, he's going to go out and, and start his own car company. This is in about 1973. He kind of loses his way for a while. Well, he must if it's, that's that's a decade before the DMC DeLorean. Yeah, he he for a while it it it, it the the different sources of the John DeLorean story, they all seem to have one or another part of the picture. Um but there's so much mythology around him and mythology that he, that clearly was true at the time, you know, like people are referring back to sources and the sources in 1972 were maybe not telling the whole story. DeLorean became the president of the National Alliance of Businessmen, which was a kind of... Uh, Sounds fake. Uh, like a, it is sort of fake, but, but it, was a, it was a charitable organization that, um, you know, wanted to get jobs for people in need. It was a, you know, it was a jobs program. Got it. That's why you can't tax the rich. That's why you can't tax the rich, but it was 100% a kind of, uh, like 
auto industry cutzeling up to the Johnson administration. Like, hey, I know the Johnson and LBJ wants to wants you know you guys, to create a great society. You guys will throw cash at problems, right? Yeah, and and the and you know and Henry Ford too is right here, like high five and white guys. Uh, and so one version of the story is the DeLorean left Chevy and became the president pro bono of the National Alliance of Businessmen and was working for free during this period. He took $1 a year, which today would be $13. <laughs> That's but what actually happened was that GM agreed to continue to pay his salary, his $200,000 a year plus bonuses, wow. while he headed the National Alliance of Businessmen. And I don't know whether that was just to keep him from going to Ford or what, or whether the National Alliance of Businessmen was selling Stinger missiles to the Contras, you know, it, that's a good gig though. I would, I would do that know. job. For, oh, for sure. That's I'm, that's my new dream. I want two hundred thousand dollars a year just to chair some in, industry advisory group. What I'm hoping is that there will that the Omnibus Project will continue to pay me to go be like a figurehead of a of a nonprofit somewhere. You just want to stop doing the podcast and just hope the Patreon stays up there. Yeah, and just well, I mean. Not stop doing the podcast so much as transition to <laughs> uh, a job where fact finding trips overseas. Yeah, that's right, exactly right. Um, so Delorean, you know, goes through the seventies, kind of putting together this group of investors, and and Delorean himself was a part investor in the San Diego Chargers. He was a part owner of the New York Yankees huh. during a time when I mean, the Yankees sold to that George Steinbrenner group. For $10 million Can you in imagine? 1970-whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, $10 million. The, the Yankees spend that on socks now. Uh, and the Chargers, too. So he was one of these... He was one of these guys that was part of the just general American culture of rich people that were all investing in each other's things. And it's early for, for, for yeah. that kind of... Uh uh, fun plaything wealth by let's buy a sports team. Yeah, that's uh, right. Let's start a vanity car company. I was talking to Hefner the other day and he said that he's putting some money into this offshore thing. And so he was a, he was a fun guy. He was on, he was in the society pages and he was able to get people to invest money in his sort of nascent sports car program. And by all accounts, he was going to, it was gonna, he was going to knock it out of the park. This guy had never failed. So he puts DeLorean together. He gets all of the best minds. He, uh, he has the – speaking of James Bond, you, you remember in – was it The Spy Who Loved Me? That uh, Lotus Esprit. That goes underwater. Yeah, That goes under the, underwater. That was designed by an Italian uh, car designer named Giorgetto. Giorgetto. Yugario. The real Lotus Esprit was, or just the Bond submarine was? No, the real Lotus Esprit. Ah. And you can really see the echoes of that design in the yeah. DeLorean. I mean, it's not stainless steel, but... But a completely flat hood. I mean, it's really... It's a, it's designed as a shard. Yeah. Um, he got him to design the DeLorean. He got... Uh, he, he had it made out of stainless steel, so it wasn't going to rust, but also he didn't need to paint it. Um, the gullwing doors were a, were a cool 70s custom car affectation that um that you were going to see later in Lamborghinis and whatnot but but um but it was a thing that made it appear to be a supercar there's something about the DeLorean today that does not make it look like the Lotus Esprit to me still looks more like a classic Tomorrowland future car than the DeLorean and I'm not sure what it is about the design is it the 
It's the General the Motors. Thing? No, it's the General Motors quad square headlights. Yes, yeah, that's true. It's it's all. If you think about it, like the, the I'm, co- I'm covering the headlights, and you're right. It did just get like twenty percent fancier. Those quad headlights end up being on the Chevy Caprice. They end up being all, all these classic concentration cars. Yeah, if you look at just the headlights, it looks like an Audi five thousand S. It looks like a. I mean, it does. It looks like a Chevy Citation. And it's just that 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 square or that rectangular quad headlight thing in 1979 or eight would have been pretty forward, but by 1982, all the car companies were using it. It's also there's no real attempt at um, at conveying the future through or, or speed through curves. No. I, I guess what you want is the uh, he's trying to convey the the muscularity of the rectangle and as a result the car is too trapezoidal for the future the trapezoid's not going to be with us in the future trapezoids are barely hanging in there today and one of the things about a car like this that that if you're going to make it look like a shard it can't also feel kind of fat and heavy and it does it does it does because he's trying to station wagon vibe in the back yeah it's a little bit it's a little bit thick but not small it's (laughs) it's thick but not small it's a thick boy. Uh, but he gets this money from um, from the Northern Ireland Development Agency. He starts to build a factory. The factory employed 2,000 people in Ireland. Um, 1,000 Protestants, 1,000 Catholics, all trying to blow each <laughs> all other just up. blowing each other up in the bathrooms. Um, they, it was, you know, it was in all the Time magazines at the time. Um, he was still, you know, John DeLorean was in a Cuddy Sark uh, whiskey ad. It was there hadn't been a new car company in in decades, right? And and especially not one that that was trying to mate the European aesthetic with the American affordability and um and that sense of this was just before the pride was back. This was when the pride was in the dumper. <laughs> there is no pride. Uh, but but the idea Americans were starting to buy European and Japanese cars in uh, profusion. And this was going to kind of be the best of both worlds. It was an American car guy building a European car. And the going door really is, you know, you're tired of your, of your little economy, uh, Chevy Vegas, right? You, you, it's, it's, it's the same appeal as, as all the features on the Tesla today. Of course you'll pay, you know, $50,000 more for this car. The door handles go in a little bit, you know, it's, it's that kind of a thing. This is a toy, but it was clear kind of, by the time the car made it to market, um, problems in just supply chain and in ramping up a new car company meant that he was going to have to sell it for probably twice what he'd initially priced it at. It were, if not twice, like he, he thought he was going to get in there at the $12,000 level and then it was $18,000 and pretty soon it was $24,000, which was – at the time, a lot of money to pay for a car. A Corvette was, you could get a, uh, like a hot Corvette for, for 18,000. And it, and this car was not that hot. So now it's very much a luxury statement to buy this car. And it's not that good a car. A flash statement, right? I mean, they, they, they put, um, American express had a, 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 a a branded American Express version of the DeLorean, which was gold plated, that sold for some like stupid amount of money, and they thought they were going to sell uh, enough of them to make that not 
seem really stupid, and I think they ended up selling four. Did it only come in that one color? Apart uh, from stainless steel, yeah. Apart from the gold, it came in any color you wanted, as long as it was silver. <laughs> but the company was on the it was on the rocks, losing like hemorrhaging money, and by the the car didn't it, itself come out until 1981, and by 1982, uh, it was. $175 million in debt. Um, and DeLorean was running out of money. He, well, he was out of money and was not able to put together that next round of funding. The British government was livid at, uh, what they saw, you know, they, they'd put all this money in there and it was, you could just flush it down the loo. Yeah. It was not saving Northern Ireland, uh, which would, which would have been nice. Northern um, Ireland was eventually saved. Maybe. Northern Ireland now. Did, did DeLorean take credit? I mean, it's the. It took, it's, a, took a decade, but. It's the gem in the crown of Ireland. Northern, <laughs> it's the crown of Ireland. Don't say that to Ireland. I, I don't think they think of it that way. Yeah, you're going to get very. The many crown of Ireland. Letters. Why do people not talk about it that way? It's the ventricle of Ireland. Americans can't get into that because that would make Canada the crown of North America. And we can't get behind that. A, the it's a it's a crown bigger than the head itself it's just it's just something for the the northernmost people to use like i'm sure the scottish and the norwegians love being the crown crown talk but but uh but like mexico doesn't quite like being the uh we're the, the crown the of the central drawers. america we're the drawers of of north america it's all how you frame it it's the crown of central america um so delorean was it, the, the world was crashing down around him and this was before Back to the Future. So Back to the Future came too late to rescue the car company. But Ironic. But um, now we get to the meat of the issue, which was how are we going to rescue the DeLorean car company if we're John DeLorean? All of a sudden, his name and uh, face are splashed across the newspapers of the world for uh, a very different reason. For the first time, John DeLorean... Uh, displays a chink in his armor and it's a considerable one in that he was arrested by the FBI for conspiracy to, uh, to sell or to import and distribute large quantities of cocaine. What's a, what's a large quantity of cocaine? Well, this is another thing that kind of varies depending on the source, uh, that you read. There was actually 59 pounds of cocaine involved in the actual transaction. But it um, is a lot. But it was it, it a, is a lot. That's a that's like a Webster and a half to use the eighties unit. But it was a pr- uh, it was a a, transac- a transaction that had that was promised to be two hundred and twenty pounds. Now in eighties dollars, two hundred and twenty pounds of cocaine was worth twenty four million dollars. Let's see what two hundred pounds of cocaine is worth today. Oh, you're calling somebody. Who are you, who are you calling here, John? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're Googling. Hi, friend. <laughs> hey, ding 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 I'm here doing the podcast, and Ken and I have a quick question. What do you say? Well, it looks like um, the current going rate, according to internet uh, infallible internet website, Quora. Um, well, see, this person's talking about cocaine that's been cut with... Uh, Rat poison. You don't want that. No. That's what killed Bernard Furster. All right, exactly. Uh, so what are they saying? $80 a gram is the current rate? Yeah, I'm sure there are futurelings listening who are who are thinking, 
I know the exact price of cocaine. Um, what do you want? 220 pounds? 220 pounds of cocaine. Ken, you're good at using the internet. Well, I mean, that's about 100,000 grams. 100,000 grams. So 80, 80 of those would be $8 million? So the price of cocaine is actually, and this is what I was kind of discovering looking here, the price of cocaine has actually come down. It's a great, it's a great time to buy, listeners. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, Jim Cramer, and I'm ringing my buy bell for cocaine. <laughs> Uh, this 59 pounds that he, um, so, so DeLorean was, and, and the story as it comes, as it, as it rung out over the course of a couple of years of court proceedings. So he was arrested. He was, he was arrested in a hotel room with this cocaine and an FBI, uh, informant and an FBI agent. And the, and the informant was a man by the name of James Timothy Hoffman, who was a drug dealer and uh, had been caught and busted by the FBI and was being used in the style of the time. To get a bigger fish. To get bigger fish. And this was a popular method that the FBI was employing to fight the mafia during this era, right? Get a guy on the inside and then then see, see who you can snare. But it was in the immediate aftermath of the abscam um, sting operation that uh, that actually like took down a U.S. senator, um, all sort of post Watergate FBI. Now we see the FBI using this technique a lot in the post nine eleven years to snare terrorists, bigger and bigger terrorists, right? Um, and and the FBI is always on the edge of being accused of entrapment, which is to say. There's a dumb kid who's living in St. Louis, and he's on jihadi websites. Dumb Kevin is uh, is going to join ISIS. He's going to join ISIS, and somebody write, sends him an email and says, "Hey, dumb Kevin, do you want to join ISIS? Meet me at the chocolate shop." And dumb Kevin goes there, and uh, the guy says, "Hey, you know what we should do? We should blow up this chocolate shop with a briefcase full of this explosive. What do you say?" And dumb Kevin goes, oh, sure. And then it's like, freeze, dumb Kevin. I don't know what the bright line is for entra- entrapment, but it seems common sense wise, it seems to be that you should not be uh, encouraging new crime. You, 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 the law enforcement agency shouldn't be acting in such a way that crimes are going to take place that would not take place otherwise. Well, and that is the bright line of entrapment. And entrapment is very difficult to prove um, as a defense. I would say most defenses that say that law enforcement are acting badly have proved difficult to prove, right? Very difficult to the prove. Institutions gather the wagons. The the in, the institutions do, although the courts are interested in in sort of checking police power to a certain degree. Uh, when it when it when it comes to this kind of behavior, which is and the burden of proof is, is it reasonable to to think that the that the defendant would never have conceived of a crime? Would never have. You have to imagine a thought experiment. Yeah. What, what are the odds this guy actually would have? Did this guy come up with this, or was this whole plot like delivered by and, a, a federal? And agent? it's tricky because the federal agent is going to have to kind of suggest the plot, because otherwise he might have done the crime, but to someone else, and then you don't get the arrest. Right. And in the case of James Timothy Hoffman, he was not an FBI agent. He was a bad, uh, a you know, a, a convicted drug distributor, and he was. He went to them and said, basically, I bet you I can get John DeLorean because they had was, they had some distant social connection. They'd well, met a couple of I'm times. I'm going to assume that as a hard-partying, hard-charging businessman of the 80s, 
John DeLorean was doing plenty of coke. And this was this was also a time when cocaine had just was just starting to transition from the expensive and widely sort of winked at drug of rock stars of rich and parties. rich parties and this was a kind of designer fashion drug to we were just starting to see the uh the cartels and the the violence and the Miami I Vice. When cocaine used to be fun. Cocaine was just a neat well, thing that almost killed Stevie Nicks. How did it have to? How do we make it so vulgar? It was I, it was it was Miami Beach that did it. So we are assuming here that John DeLorean was doing so much cocaine that he had to have a second carburetor installed above his nose. <laughs> is, that, is that our assumption? That's that is why the hood of John DeLorean had that big bump out. You don't want to get a vapor lock under those eyebrows. That's why the eyebrows, right? They're there to, to filter the cocaine. Uh, DeLorean is what he's trying to do is make money to cover the seventeen million dollars of personal debt. He's in DeLorean. The DeLorean company is still, uh, you know, like eking by there. He still imagines like so many guys that have bet it all on something that if he can just cover this, just turn a corner. Yeah. Just like cover these interest payments. Just get, just pay off his debtors need to see a little daylight. All he has to do is sell another thousand cars and it's off to the, the races. And so, and so, so he Hoffman, probably would have, even if not for, by the way, James Timothy Hoffman is a great serial or killer or, or classic. A political assassin name. Classic, classic, terrible guy name. It's just because we're using his middle name. James Timothy Hoffman. So even, but, even but if Jim, Timothy is, is a great serial killer name, it right? Is. Yeah. So even if James Timothy Hoffman was not uh, extorting him, boy, that really is a great serial killer yeah, name. Sure like is. it's like invented for Dexter or something. <laughs> it's McVeigh plus. So, uh, so even if he was... Even if he had not entrapped DeLorean, DeLorean presumably was already interested in in trafficking some coke. Well, so this is this is what hit the newspapers. And at the time, everyone rolled their eyes, I think, in the popular press and in the I mean the general consensus was, oh, of course, John DeLorean He's desperate. Is and also part of this world of cocaine trafficking that uh that we're seeing now sort of taking down the rich or being a being um uh, like part of the the decline and fall of of the the smart set. We've seen his Italian suits. Right, we know what to expect. And we imagine now that the cars themselves are are part of a cocaine importation scheme. You know, there was all this this. Uh, oh, really? There's cars. In well, the, just the sense, drugs in the door panels. Yeah, or the sense that oh, this has all got to be connected to a larger thing. Um, and so. DeLorean was more or less tried in the court of public opinion. Um, and the DeLorean company filed for bankruptcy a couple of days after he was arrested for trafficking. Um, but he's, he spent the next couple of years in court trying to prove that he had been entrapped rather than nabbed. Mm -hmm. And although it didn't really make it into the press and didn't become part of the DeLorean story. And we'll see why in a second or, or a suggestion why uh, DeLorean actually made a pretty convincing case that James Timothy Hoffman came to him and said, I can put you in touch with a group of investors that want to bail you out and didn't mention cocaine at all. Mm. And DeLorean said, you know, I'm $17 million in debt. What have I, what do I got to do? I am taking all these calls. And it was through a gradual process of like, well, meet me here. We're going to meet this group of investors. 
where it's like, oh, well, the investors couldn't come. They're from Colombia, and they're going to put $30 million. You know, like little yeah. by little. But but ultimately, so DeLorean said that he realized something was rotten in Denmark and actually wrote a letter to his lawyer saying, I'm playing along with this guy. Uh, don't open this letter unless – you know, unless they find me dead or whatever. He is smart. I'm going to this meeting, but I know that it's, but I'm only going because the guy like threatened the, the safety of my children and whatnot. Um, and so DeLorean's entrapment defense, uh, which is an extremely rare victory for a sort of procedural defense like that, where you say, you know, the, the cops, that's what every, this is what everybody tries and it yeah, never works. It never works, right? This is the this is the um this is the one in a hundred shot. But he actually is uh is acquitted of the cocaine bust. And it, by this point in time, you know, the DeLorean company was long insolvent. And in fact, the DeLorean company was those those missing cars that that we were looking for, what you asked, like what happened yeah. to those missing cars. Um, the company was bought by a, uh, bought out of receivership by a group that took the old parts that were lying around and actually finished a bunch of cars that hadn't been, oh. that were, how, you know, how late was this? This was still this in, the, 80s was in the, in the mid eighties and, you know, and kind of little by little sold off that back catalog. Uh, that, that company had no intention of like revive, reviving the DeLorean, car company they just were like hey we can buy all this stuff for pennies on the dollar and sell these deloreans for eighteen thousand dollars to guys like john roderick in 1989 who thought this would be a cool car to drive around if only you'd done it what are they worth today uh well that's a really good question delorean himself although acquitted then immediately was charged with embezzling money um to to keep up his embezzling money from the DeLorean company to, to, uh, support his lifestyle and, um, and was then mired in controversy kind of for the rest of the eighties and nineties. He tried a couple of times to make a comeback selling luxury watches. And for a while he was going to, he, he thought he could start another car company. None of it really panned out. And, um, and he, eventually declared bankruptcy and sold, had to sell off all of his, his uh, luxurious properties and died at the age of 80 in a, in a townhouse with his much younger wife. Um, sort of in, you know, he never was able to pull off that American third act where well, that's interesting. You always expect people like that to even, you know, it's the big collapse that people do just fine and still wind up with their big house in Miami or whatever. Yeah. But, but it seems like in his case, uh, he was kind of wiped out. The car, yeah. the cars, by the way, go for about 50,000 today. So 50,000. I mean, if you had invested $12,000 in Apple stock in 1989, sure. you would you have know. a lot more than that. Yeah. So I mean, if you'd had it sitting under your, your, uh, your mattress, it would have doubled. If you'd bought X-Men comics, it would probably triple. Unless you got Blackberry on them. Here's what I've learned from this story, is that if you're ever going to do a crime, make sure you send a note to your lawyer being like, hey, by the way, I'm not doing any crimes. Can you seal this envelope? What's interesting about the old note to the lawyer is 
it seems exceptionally easy to back engineer. Right. Right. If I were a lawyer, I would just every day like go down to the post office and have a have a uh, a stamped envelope canceled. Just steam open and then, you know, st- have one every day. <laughs> and just like have a huge file of of canceled envelopes. Okay, like, John, yeah, this one got what, mailed. What, what day do you want to tell me you weren't doing any crimes? I got you covered. And that concludes the DeLorean Cocaine Bust. Entry 330.JB1810, certificate number 36728, in the omnibus. Uh, Futurelings... Uh, one of the other terrible inventions of our time, in addition to the DMC DeLorean, was social media. Mm. Uh, you can uh, only nine thousand social media platforms were made, uh, right. all in Northern Ireland. Four of them gold plated. <laughs> uh, all of them uh, terrible. Um, if you get them up to eighty eight miles per hour, you you don't go back in time. You just have like a coronary. Um, but John and I uh, we're we're accessible to. Uh, to our uh, audience and of well wishers, accessible and susceptible. We were susceptible. <laughs> what, are, what are they trying to uh, suscept you to? Uh, to a cocaine bust. Ah. I mean, or, you know, to a to a cocaine deal. If someone came to you, Ken, and said, "Look, you don't have to do cocaine, but there's a lot of money in cocaine. Why don't you turn some of your Jeopardy earnings into real money?" What uh, would you say? I have non-cocaine privilege. I have a. Uh, a, a stable middle class lifestyle without having to turn to drug trafficking. So, yeah, you know, I, I can't, I can't judge a kid with no other way out. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, it's a very different world where you know you can't feed your family unless you're dealing. Absolutely. But luckily, those were not the kind of street corners I grew up on. Mm. <laughs> uh, which is why I'm not selling you drugs right now, uh, except for the sweet, sweet drug of supporting Omnibus of podcast listening. <laughs> you got that twice weekly hit. Uh, you can uh, follow us at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, and at Omnibus Project. Um, we have a lovely group of Facebook listeners here in our era at Facebook, uh, the Facebook group Futurelings, uh, and similar gatherings on Reddit and Discord. Um, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can send us things through the postal service. Here's So the last thing I opened... The last thing I opened to you had a had um, had racist um, memorabilia in it. Yeah, had racist. What do we uh, got? In, what do, what do we got in this one? Is it I don't uh, know. somebody's grandfather's KKK hood? This one came from Seattle, so oh. I think it's less likely to be less likely to be. It's it's some clan st- paraphernalia, st- a stolen Native American artifact. Yeah, it's. Uh, the thing about opening these in real time is it's very authentic, but also that it takes a while. Wait, what is this? What it's, is it? It's it's wrapped in a page from a Mad Libs book, which is a great oh, wrapping paper. That is a good one because you can do the Mad Lib after you open. Well, here I'm not going to open your gift. Oh wait, it, did you get one too, or is it just me? This one is just to you. Is this like Christmas I, morning where we have to alternate? I feel. I think Ralphie <laughs> played Santa last I, year. I feel bad about getting mail. I think it's because you're the one that always says, "Beautifully, send me yeah. attic stuff." Yeah, that's true. I'll, I'll open uh, this thing. This, I'm like, this is like at the end of Christmas morning where the person with too few presents has to open like the, the family thing from grandma. <laughs> you, you, uh, you get all the walnuts out of the stockings. Uh, but this is very, whatever's in this envelope. This is beautifully wrapped. Oh, no. oh it's coins. Ah. Uh-oh. <laughs> They're everywhere. Oh, wait. This is a very small little leather bound book 
And the seal on the cover is the seal of the Bank of America. Oh, it's not a book, Ken. It looks like a book, but it's a piggy bank. It's a fake book? It's a fake book can bank. You, can you? Oh, it's got a slot. So it's not the kind that opens up and there's the outline of a, of a brandy bottle or a gun. No, no, it's a... Well, I don't know what's in it. it see if there's something good in it. I don't have the key. But I bet I could pick this lock. Well, we got to do the Mad Lib first. Oh, oh. No, I'm just kidding. We don't have to do that. <laughs> it's a long Let's do a 20-minute outro. So what is, what, is, what is that over there? Uh, it's, uh, it's from Alita, who loves old coins. She says they're mostly for my wife. That's cool. Um, this is stuff she found cleaning out her grandfather's house. Sorry that they kind of stink. I kind of like the smell of the, the smell of old coins. I do too. Is that what they smell like, All or the, do they smell like a dead raccoon? No, they smell kind of like the, the the many hands they've passed through. Yeah, yeah, that's a great smell. What are the coins? You know a little bit of numismatic. Uh, well, here's a history. sample one. It's a 1975 uh, Mexican one peso piece. All right. There's a few of those. This is an aluminum uh, Chinese one yuan or can't see the year. Oh, so this is really just what was in the jar on her grandfather's dresser. Yes. Here's Chilean 10 peso piece. Here's 10 francs, which kind of franc, a French franc. That's lovely. It's kind of, kind of got a deco design. This 1977 franc. Uh, these are lovely. Um, more pesos, more PRC money. Jingle, jingle. Some kind of Canadian aluminum dime. Ah, no, it's it's heavier. From 86. Uh, thank you so much for the stinky coins. That's, wonder- that's wonderful. We love that stuff. Uh, does your daughter like coins? Would she like these? I have a jar of coins, coins from around the world uh, that, I, that I keep that has... All kinds of stuff like that, but I bet you there are some in that pile that I don't have. And when you opened up your um, your piggy bank book, what was well, there I haven't in it? yet oh, okay. because the I actually do have a kind of master key for old piggy banks. Have you thought of putting a couple of these old coins into it? Well, I don't know. Combine if, your two gifts. I don't know if there's something in there right now that maybe doesn't want a bunch of old coins on it. There might be a kind of. I mean, there for all I know, plastic. There's a there's a genie in here. Whoa, Ken, 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 Ken. Ken. Yeah, I'm right here, John. Ken. I found the key to the to the lock. It was in a little bag. Uh, and I don't know how it got you threw it over here and I thought it was just a nothing. But uh, you, you thought it was drugs. I did. I thought you were sending me another bag of drugs, but look, it's a homemade key. This is not a key. This is a key that someone fashioned with a pair of snips just to match the lock? I guess. I don't know how you I mean, it's not a complicated key, as you can see, but the little, the little bank. And then what's in the, so what's in the bank then? Right. The key fits weirdly, but it, it pops open. It is a bank and there's a note inside. As I suspected, it says, and this is a, it, this is written in a, in that wonderful sort of half cursive, half printing that so many of us adopted. After we were... It wasn't Danelian. We weren't being taught it. <laughs> right. We just only learned half of each alphabet. It says, hey, old man, this vintage faux book piggy bank seems right up your alley. People use that phrase a lot with me. 
This seems right up your alley. You have a very wide and accessible alley. My alley is full of stuff. Because all of this stuff goes right up it. And it's easy to imagine your alley. Because none of these people have ever been there, and yet they know what can be found up it. They're like, I saw this thing, and I can picture this being in John's alley. And you're not wrong. Um, I hope it brings you pleasure, says our correspondent. It comes with a working key, although obviously not the original. Now, this is written in the letter that was inside... The, the bank. Thank you for that explanation, sir. <laughs> so, Where was it five minutes ago when John was trying to open that thing? So the fact that the note specifies that it has a working key, I think, is going to be self-evident to me. And then it's signed in, like, much more elegant cursive than the letter is written. Happy birthday, Dawn. D-A-W-N. So this is from ah. Dawn. And she has written this note on a piece of she's done the thing where you take a piece of wrapping paper uh that's looks like a William Morris print doesn't it, it yeah a little bit was was the bo- was, the box was wrapped in something similar i think so it's like william morris wallpaper and and there's my little safe which is so and great and was there anything inside it besides the note uh no. And then the what note. are you going to put in it? Well, I'm going to put that... Um, put all the weird money people keep uh, yeah, sending I'm going to put the one million uh, Turkish lira note in it because that's my other favorite thing. So what are you going to what are you going to put in there? Uh, I'm just I'm probably going to use it as the bank where I keep all the the weird coins and bills and other fake money that people send us. Perfect. Which it happens all the time. It's burglar burglar proof. Burglar proof. You have to make your own key. To they're going to break in here and they're going to not know how to. Get, they're going to be like, well, here's a little book he reads, but where's his fake money? <laughs> That's the sound of it locking. Anyway, if you'd like to send us uh, weird stuff and have us be puzzled by it in real time, you can send it to PO Box five five seven four four. Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Um, there are many ways to, to contribute to the ongoing success of the show. Just by listening, honestly, you're doing more than most people. So well done, one percenters. Here, here. Uh, you can always recommend the show, review the show, listen to John's other shows. He sounds like he needs the money. He's pondering $25 million Coke deal. I, I uh, appreciate every penny. Uh, you could, uh, But you can contribute materially to Omnibus, if your budget allows, at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. And enjoy uh, being part of the supporter community and the uh, the perks attached, like a monthly addenda show or uh, a video feed of all the weird uh, mail we open and show notes and whatnot. Uh, in fact, this this week's show about the DMC DeLorean was suggested by a Patreon donor. Oh, isn't that interesting, Matt? I had no idea. You just you just uh, you just slipped that note under my pillow. <laughs> you, you thought I was just telling you to do a show about You're the like, DMC hey, DeLorean? Psst, psst, DeLorean. Now, Matt, uh, because he donates at the, I can't remember what the levels are. Sentient Aspen level? No, you get to you get to suggest a show at the. At the what? The fourth tier, which is... I can't even remember. Is it something about robots, John? Hmm. Robots. Whatever the fourth tier is. The, could, four, the fourth tier. The four, it sounds like we're <laughs> Scientologists. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a level four Thetan... Right. Get to the fourth tier and unlock the, the gate. Then you unlock the secret of being able to suggest a, a show topic every 12 months. 
Uh, and thank you, Matt. Matt suggested the DMC DeLorean, but you thought it should be more about cocaine. So you called an audible there. Yeah. Well, uh, generally, if somebody sends me a suggestion, um, the tendency is to suggest things like World War II. Have you thought of doing a show on World War II? World War II. And then I think, well, that's a little bit too either broad or narrow. Or not enough cocaine, your usual critique. But if there's cocaine, if you can have a cocaine angle, like Nietzsche's sister, I almost was going to introduce the cocaine angle, but then you seem to have covered it. Did a, did a nice show. It w- should it have, have had more cocaine in I, your I mind? I can't imagine an omnibus episode that wouldn't be improved by adding a little cocaine. It is the washing bear level, by the way. Oh. But but there are uh, other more attainable levels where you can have fun stuff like uh, autographed show notes mailed to you, or again, the monthly bonus episode and or the Patreon video feed. Thank you so much to our uh, well over 1,000 supporters, 1,672 patrons as I record this, who make Omnibus uh, a going concern. Otherwise, the last show would have been whatever it was last fall when we left uh, iHeartMedia. Can you imagine? We were still on iHeartMedia. This, this this year has been rough enough without 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 omnibus to to, uh, to put wind beneath our wings. Can you imagine? Ugh, I think about it all the time. Thank you for all you do, sweat. Patreoners. Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived or how much of it was powered by terribly cut cocaine filled with baby laxative. I'm just, I hope. I'm just addicted to baby laxative. I hate that they keep cutting it with cocaine. <laughs> we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.